Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Pat. Episode number 154, recorded January 16th, 2014. Our 83rd 90s episode, and we finish off, almost finish off, the DS9 run on Malibu with their Celebrity Series. Ooh, Celebrities. So we get, what is it, Rules of Diplomacy, number one, written by Aaron Eisenberg. And we get, uh, what's the other one called? Blood and Honor, written by Mark Leonard. Yes, Mark Leonard. Of Sarek fame. And other characters in the Star Trek pantheon. And if I'm doing my math right, uh, I think the story came out maybe a year at max before he passed away. So, Wow, that's something. One of, one of his last contributions to Star Trek. Wow. Hmm. So I don't know exactly how old he was when he passed on, but he probably, you know, was probably pretty up there. But uh, that's cool. He's still writing and he was probably still acting uh, where he could. And he has this very cool uh, story for us. Right. And I really liked how this story, he's the sole writer. I mean, there's no other, you know, I don't see any any other mention of any type of assistance. So, I mean, he, he wrote this. Yeah, which is good, as opposed to uh, Aaron Eisenberg, right. uh, the guy that plays Nog, who contributed to writing the second issue we're going to review. Uh, Mark Pan- uh, Panacea. Right. He wrote it with. Right, right. So, so, but but still, I mean, I, I like that he, you know, it was kind of cool the, reading the little story on how how this one came about. Is that Aaron Eisenberg met Mark Pan- Panacea and was like, you know, why in your comic books is Dog not in it very much? <laughs> and then he was like, well, why don't you come over here and write one? And he did. <laughs> so yeah, I, I little was, fella. I thought that was a good story. Yeah, that was a good story. I like that. And there's. Not quite the same kind of cute little story about when uh, Mark Leonard got involved with the Malibu folks. I guess they met at a fan convention something. They had gotten together and and said, hey, let's do a story. So pretty cool. Right. Yeah. And, you know, both of these stories, I think, work work pretty well. Yeah. There are some aspects that I'm maybe not as crazy about in the uh, Blood and the Honor story. But definitely the Nog story is nice and light and entertaining, and really it's hard to say much against it because there really isn't that much there. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just light and airy and entertaining, and that's, right. that's it. Where there's a lot more stuff with a little bit more uh, weight to it going on in Blood and Honor. It's a very ambitious story, I thought. Yeah. And maybe slightly more than you could get away with in just a 22-page book. Cause right. There is a lot of expanded universe Star Trek stuff trying to be right. delved into in these in these in these pages. Right, and who knows? Maybe the original idea he started developing as a novel or something, or maybe even uh, 
maybe even a, a TV show script. Who knows? Right. And then maybe he adapted it for this. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But it's good. So you uh, you want to do that one first then? I would love to do that first. All right. Let's, let's jump in. Okay. So this is Malibu Deep Space Nine Celebrity Series, Blood and Honor number one, which is kind of interesting because as far as I know, there is no number two for either one of these issues this week. Published date on this one is May 1995. Creative team is writer Mark Leonard, penciler Leonard Kirk. Additional pencils, Ken Penders. Inks are by a lot of people. Terry Pallet, Scott Reed, Larry Welch, and Ken Penders. Letterer, Roxanne Starr. Color design, Moose Bauman. Interior color, Prism Riot. Color editor, Andy Walton. Media line editor, Mark Panacea. Editor assistants from Clarissa Manasala and Chris Pelton. The cover is a rather busy one. We see Deep Space Nine and a runabout to set the story's location. A Romulan battlecruiser is included to tell us this story's big bad is a Romulan, or Romulans, or so we think. Captain Sisko, with a stern look of concern, is in the center. The head of a brunette with 1980s big hair is on the right. On the left is the head of what at first appears to be Ambassador Sarek, but on closer look reveals the character is wearing a Romulan uniform. On the upper right corner is a black and white photo of Mark Leonard, and Mr. Leonard's signature is in a black box at the bottom right of the cover. The story opens with a science officer log entry from Jedzia Dax. She, Dr. Bashir, and a young officer named Jamie are returning in a runabout from the Gamma Quadrant to DS9 with an exciting discovery. Sisko hails the Orinoco runabout and transports Dr. Bashir directly to the infirmary as soon as the runabout enters transporter range. In the infirmary, Lieutenant Jayakari is laid out unconscious and bloody. She suffered a serious trauma in an explosion. Bashir says if she is, and unexpectedly a stranger comes forward and completes his question, dead? The mysterious Romulan says she is indeed dead, but what they need to determine now is if it was due to an unfortunate accident or malevolent treachery. A diplomatic incident could be the result depending upon which is the case. Dr. Bashir asks who he is. Janik is the reply. He says he is an envoy of the Romulan government representing his people's interests with the Bajoran High Council. Sisko takes over the conversation and says there will always be a thorough investigation when it comes to the death of one of his people. Lieutenant Jayakar was torn apart when the docking ring opened between the station and the Romulan envoy ship. Odo reports that O'Brien checked the dock out prior to the routine ship docking and reported it fully functional. That means sabotage is extremely likely. Odo declines to speculate on who could have carried out the sabotage this early in the investigation. Janik says in that case he will depart until more is known. On his way out, Jadzia tries to say hello to Janik, who does not recognize her. She explains she is Dax, and Janik says, but obviously not Curzon. Janik asks Jedzia to come by later for a talk and calls her old friend. 
Finally, before he leaves, Janet comments he is surprised to see Jamie on the station, but says someone in Starfleet personnel has made a wise choice. Jamie asks Janet if she knows him. Janet says cryptically, not at this time. Janet leaves it at that and departs the infirmary. Bashir asks Jamie if anyone in her family, which is populated with many members of Starfleet, is on familiar terms with Romulans. She says that depends on which branch of the family tree and what you mean by familiar. On Bajor, Sisko stands with Janik before the Bajoran High Council. The Bajorans have read enough reports about Romulans' interactions with other people that their initial reaction to the ambassador is guarded. On the station, Dax, Jamie, and Dr. Bashir are studying the Gamma Quadrant artifact. Its energy output is off the charts. As they marvel at the artifact's properties, the ambassador's aide staggers into the infirmary. He collapses into a bed, saying he is in extreme abdominal pains. Jamie tells Bashir they have found something very interesting. Ambassador Janik is speaking to Sisko alone in Janik's assigned quarters on the station. The ambassador says he is fascinated with Federation history, the exploits of the flagship Enterprise, and one of her captains, James T. Kirk, is of particular interest. He says Sisko reminds him a bit of Kirk. Sisko says there are vast differences between he and Kirk. They both say they are products of their time. Janik says his father was a military commander, and he is a diplomat. Sisko calls it an evening, and as he is leaving, the ambassador's aide enters. The aide reports on the interesting artifact one of their people spotted in the infirmary. The object emits great amounts of power. It might even be a life form. Janik asks who oversees it, and the aide says Dr. Bashir, Jedzia Dax, and Jamie Kirk. Ambassador Janik completes the aide's sentence. Janik thanks the aide and moves into another room. In the previous room, a glimmering gold water decanter turns into Odo. Odo slips out of the room. Later in Quarks, Odo is pumping Quark for what he knows about recent events on the station, but in particular, the artifact. Quark claims to be a simple, honest barkeep. Odo warns him that the Romulans know about the artifact, so anyone in possession of it could become a target. Quark finally breaks down and says he has had a few inquiries from multiple separate Bajorans. They offer good money, too, but did not say what they want with it. As Odo leaves, Quark says that smart money says anything that emits great power and is from the Gamma Quadrant is worth its weight in latinum. An alarm sounds and Odo leaves the bar. A plasma explosion occurs in the infirmary. A security breach has been detected. Odo arrives first and finds a dead crewman. Odo thinks his killer is likely in the next room, where the artifact is emitting blinding light and likely other forms of radiation. Sisko arrives. When the light show subsides, they go in and find the artifact glowing all alone in the room. Lieutenant Winter's killer is nowhere to be found. In another part of the station, a Romulan is found dead. Dr. Bashir says death by phaser fire. Sisko goes to Janik's quarters to ask for his cooperation in the investigation. 
When Sisko tells him his Lieutenant Riken was killed, Janik admits that Riken was under orders to find out whatever he could that would help with his diplomatic overtures to the Bajorans. Later, Sisko was speaking to Major Kira, trying to figure Janik out. Was Janik's lieutenant trying to steal the artifact? How would that help Janik's overtures to the Bajorans? Kira's not sure, but she does say it's likely that Bajorans were involved in the murders. Any powerful object from the Gamma Quadrant is thought to ultimately come from the Prophets, and as such, is an extremely desirable thing, particularly for Bajoran religious fundamentalists. Odo enters and tells them about Janik's fascination with Ensign Kirk. He visited her in Quarks as well. In Quarks, Janik wanted to talk to Ensign Kirk about history and how it shows they have something in common. She had to leave before he could complete the objective of his conversation. Meanwhile, Dr. Bashir, Dax, and Ensign Kirk leave in a runabout with the artifact to continue their investigation of it undisturbed. The good intention was squashed when two Bajorans dressed in station uniforms emerged from hiding places. They pointed guns at the others and referred to the artifact as the Chalice. They say they want to return it to the people it belongs to. On DS9, Kira reports the Orinoco has significantly deviated from flight plan and headed for the far side of Bajor. Sisko assembles a team to meet him in the Rio Grande. They are going after them. Janik happens to be in ops and talks his way onto the mission. Later, they land on a remote open desert region on Bajor, where they find the Orinoco. Janik somehow picks up their trail as he leads the others to the site of a religious ritual with the chalice as its centerpiece. A female Bajoran priestess of some kind is standing over the chalice reciting words and spouting rhetoric about how disbelievers will be struck down and the prophets will lead the chosen ones to greatness. There are other Bajorans including two that commandeered the Orinoco. Those two are holding guns on Dr. Bashir, Dax, and Ensign Kirk. Sisko and his team hesitate and observe to learn more about their opponents before they make their move. In the meantime, the chalice grows blindingly bright, with the priestess's proximity and words. Bashir, having seen Raiders of the Lost Ark several times, knows just what to do. He shouts to the others to avert their eyes. The priestess tells her Bajoran followers to stare into it. Apparently, she has not seen the film. Priestess and all the rest of the Bajorans fall over screaming, Arg! A shape comes out of the chalice. The blinding energy turns into the shape of a man in robes. The huge glowing figure says, All that were struck down will recover. He explains he is an Organian the last of his kind. His people expended their life force to enforce the peace they imposed on the Klingon and Federation people. Before he departs this plane of existence, he wants to lead the Romulan and Federation on the same path of peace. He contacted Janik previously, and Janik wants the same thing. With Jamie Kirk's help, they will begin to build a lasting peace. Jamie protests and asks what she has to do with any of this. Janik explains that before Jamie's father was born, an ancestor of his and Janik's father met in battle. His father lost that battle. 
Janik has inherited the responsibility to hand out revenge against the ancestors of Jamie's. However, over the years, Janik obtained his father's logs and came to know that his father wanted peace, not war and vengeance. Janik says he understands his father's wishes, and now he wishes it too. If Jamie agrees to become his liaison officer with the Federation, the first step of many hard steps will begin towards a lasting peace. The Organian, satisfied with the events, says it's time for him to depart and Janik and Jamie to start their journey. Janik tells Jamie, an old family friend awaiting you is glad you joined our cause this day. The end. And who is it? I thought that whole last sentence was very cryptic. I, I assume it's Kirk. I mean, Jim Kirk. But I really don't know. Well, he says a family friend. Oh, uh, family. Oh, a family friend. An old family friend. Okay. So I assumed it was Spock. Spock. That Spock ah. is working with this Romulan. Yeah, good point. On Romulus. That's a good point. That would but make sense. I thought it was pretty cryptic, though. Yeah, it was quite cryptic. And I had read it a few times, and I really didn't get it. So, good job, Donovan. That makes sense. Well, I try. <laughs> so, Jamie Kirk, huh? Yeah, Jamie Kirk. Kind of convenient, eh? So little did we know that David had a kid? That's an excellent question, because I was thinking about that, as I, obviously you did too. If she is a descendant of Kirk's, or the Kirk family anyway... Uh, who possibly could it be? As far as I know, David did not have a kid before he no. got killed by the Klingons. Of course not. But did they actually ever explicitly say that? No, but he didn't. It's yeah. it's one of his nephew's kids. Yeah. Well, that's what Memory Beta says. So I looked it up, and Memory Beta says, although I think this is just theory, as James T. Kirk's only known child, known, <laughs> David Marcus was killed on the Genesis planet. It is likely she is descendant from one of Jim's nephews, the sons of George Samuel Kirk Jr. Possibly Craig Kirk, who has a daughter of which little is known, rather than being Kirk's direct descending. And Craig Kirk is the one that I was telling you uh, a few weeks ago is not a name that's usually used in the expanded universe, but... Mm -hmm was the actor who played Peter in the episode of those scenes that got cut out. Right. So that's why uh, I think that was probably the last roundup was the time that it mentioned him by Craig instead of the names that, that we were talking about last week. Right. Anyways, I just thought it was funny that you're not going to even explain how exactly she's related to Kirk. Just uh, Well, I mean, at this point, does it matter that much? I mean, well, I mean, I, I, I would like to know for sure, but um, and she, and the way she's drawn, she doesn't really look like Kirk, right? No, and, and, and in fact, that last page, she, she barely looks human on that on that <laughs> the top right hand panel on the last. Okay, page. Let, I got to look at this because you mentioned that before we started the recording, and I was her, like, "What?" Her eyes look too big and spread out, almost like. Like that uh, one of the that nurse in the Star Trek 2009 movie. <laughs> okay, so the last panel she's in, right? Well, no, no, no. The last page, uh, top right hand. Oh, panel. she looks human. Mm. She's got she's got big 
big brown eyes, that's all. Abnormally large. She almost looks like a, a human version of Bambi. <laughs> you know when Bambi was a baby at the beginning? A young, a young deer. Really huge brown eyes. Anyways. Uh, yeah. She looks cute, but really. As far as David, you mentioned that Memory Alpha comment. David, in my opinion, was not his only kid because we, we read those Chris Claremont comics where okay. there was the, the, the Klingon woman, Takar, or Takur. Oh, which, right. Which right. I think has to be Kirk's daughter, half Romulan daughter. Right. Well, when they first mentioned all this stuff, that actually was what I was thinking of. You thought they were going to bring that back? I thought that I thought that's who they were going to bring back because that's the only only kid I really remembered. Of course, by this point, it would have been her descendant. But well, no, because Takur was in uh, in a Next Generation episode. Remember? <sighs> yeah, but how how old was she? I mean, she's not going to be a young little trollop like this. Yeah, she's Romulan. They age slower. Well, okay, but. Still, I mean, obviously this is not to Kirk. Oh, absolutely not, because she's not Romulan. Right. So. Anyways. Whatever. You know, I thought it was a fine story. It was a little all over the place. And then throwing in the Organians, it was like, wow! It's like uh, one of those, I didn't see that coming, and I'm not sure I wanted to see it get here. (laughs) Right. So this little bit of continuity that all the Organians are dead... Is is not followed anywhere else. So, are the Organians actually mentioned again in Next Gen time period? Uh, not in the show episodes themselves. Well, but yeah, they are but... mentioned in some of the expanded universe novels and other comic okay. books. Okay. Cool. Yep. So, maybe this guy somehow is mistaken in thinking that uh, all of his kind are dead. Hmm. But, anyways, I, I didn't really understand why he was in a little sphere or a little little statue and why it was in the Gamma Quadrant. I mean, yeah. Lots of questions that never exactly. got answered. Yeah, I mean, d- did he have to be in that state for some reason? Or was he there just, what, incognito or something? I mean, what's the purpose? Right. Yeah, I, I didn't get that. And when he says, everyone who has died will come well, back. Well, stricken down. Right. Or whatever he said. Because of him, will come right. back. Right. So, how, how far back does that go? Because that one woman that that Cisco was trying to blame on the Romulans, I mean, she died before the little thing was even on DS9. So Yeah, so... So how did she die? I mean, that well, was never answered. I completely agree. That almost seems like... A red herring. She now, still did. Well, what killed her? What are, I know that, but I'm, it's a red herring. So you think it's going to go somewhere, but it doesn't. Now, those other two guys in the middle that got killed, the one, the Romulan, and then that other crewman, when Cisco and Odo got to the radiation right. thing or whatever. Right. Now, I assume those guys were killed by the Bajoran guys that were trying to get the chalice. I assume. Oh, but. Okay. I'm not sure. I mean, especially the guy that got killed by phaser fire, the Romulan. Yeah, it. Yeah. That hatchway explosion makes no sense, at yeah. least that I can see. No, and they're not, and they're not even investigating it anymore. 
Right. And that was like the first third of the book is now just forget about it. <laughs> Romulan's a good guy. He wouldn't have done that. No. So what about that Raiders of the Lost Ark thing? Don't look at the light, Marion. <laughs> I I get it. That is funny. I didn't even think about Raiders of the Lost Ark. That uh, he says everyone advert their eyes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it so it's pretty funny. Well, it is funny because it's ex- it's also expeditious. It, it cleaned up some things pretty quick, so that's nice. But it's like good god, good gosh. Um, and how does Bajur, how, how does uh, Doctor Bashir know to avert his eyes? I, I know he's been studying the thing, but come on. Well, he's a doctor, and when you see blinding light shooting at your face, that's just what he's going to say: avert your eyes. <laughs> it's not good for your corneas. I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor. I know. <laughs> Unless, of course, you've got a uh, Vulcan inner eyelid or something. Oh yeah, that's good. Good call. Oh yeah. Yeah, so, again, a very, very ambitious story to bring in all these random elements and try to tie them in together, and maybe it didn't get quite pulled off. Yeah. Maybe it should have been a two-parter. Maybe. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the Romulan in Balance of Terror died, right? Oh, yeah. He blew up the the ship. The whole ship got blown up, right. Right. Self-destruct, right? Yeah, yeah. So, well, this guy acts like, you know, he somehow had communication with his grandfather or father or whatever it is after those events. So I was really confused where he's getting what his father would have thought in this situation and things like that. Well, he said pretty clearly through his logs is where he said he got some of his – information or understanding that he was really wanting peace. The only thing is, obviously he's not going to get any of the logs during the battle, because the thing blew up, right? Yeah, black box. Well, okay, maybe. Well, okay. Well, you're going to ruin my point if you do if you pull the black box card on me. <laughs> Go ahead. But the main point is, I, I thought... Okay. So, obviously the commander uh, that was in Balance of Terror wanted peace... Well before the mission started, I guess. Because I guess definitely in the episode he did mention some things about some misgivings about the mission. But um, he seemed to get more of the peace thing as the battle went on. But I say it was his logs prior to the mission that could have been the only thing that Janik would have had access to. That's what I say. Mm, okay. Could be wrong. Could be wrong. All right. We'll see him get ready for that mission whenever we do... IDW did a miniseries on Romulus, and he factors into that story quite a bit. Oh, cool. So you get to maybe hear a little bit about what he was thinking right before the mission. And I read it back when it came out, you know, four or five years ago. Right. And for the life of me, I can't remember him having that much misgivings on, you know, building this attack ship type stealth ship. But uh, I, I will... Actually, I think he was kind of okay with it. Yeah. Think about it. <laughs> but I might either misremember or it might not be there. Right. So, something to look forward to whenever we get around to those. Cool. Last comment. Another thing that seemed like a, not a big deal related to the dock explosion is they were in such a stinking big deal to get Bashir to examine the dead body. Right. That once he got there, like, Bashir didn't even 
they didn't even have to check her pulse. And Odo comes in and says, oh yeah, Brian says he checked the portal. It was fine before it exploded. It must be, you know, sabotage. Right. So it's yeah. like, what was okay. Larry? Yeah, I thought he was beaming over there to help her. Then, That's what I thought too. But then they say, like, oh yeah, she's dead. She's She's dead. She's been dead. <laughs> figure, it, figure it out. <laughs> I was I was pretty shocked. It's like Cisco. What what's the big deal, Cisco? She's a dead she's a dead sack of meat. And Odo already says, uh, you know, I sabotage. So what's what's Bashir gonna tell you? Yeah, that didn't make sense to me either. I mean, especially if it was an explosion. I mean, unless you fa- find a piece of bomb shrapnel in the body, what are you gonna tell with an autopsy? It was an explosion. Yeah, and the picture of the explosion looks much more damaging than her body. I mean, if you look at yeah. her body, it's it's intact. It's intact. It's maybe bloody. A, maybe but... a little charred. But uh, if you look at the picture of the explosion, right? she should be a, ripped know, to pieces. Bacon. <laughs> oh, bacon. I oh, mean, that's nice. She's wrapped up in fire, and it, it looks yeah. horrible. It, it, actually, it's kind of a cool drawing, but... Yeah, but I agree. If you think about that being a person yep. and going through that, it's a horrible. And then her body just has a few rips in her shirt and a bloody nose. Yeah. Good point. So my last comment is judge warrants. Do they have to have a judge warrant to sneak into someone's private chambers and eavesdrop on them? Oh! <laughs> because Odo's just there. Odo? Are you kidding? That's Odo's thing. Yeah, but he hi- he hides all over the place. Yes, that there has to be some sort of personal rights. You can't just sneak into someone's thing, sit on their dinner table the whole time, and exactly not, and, and maybe even provide him water from your own body. <laughs> exactly. I was wondering that. Did they ever <laughs> use that vase? Exactly. Or that picture, whatever it is. Right. Right. I I don't know. I just I didn't like that part. I thought that was a little. You know, I never really thought about it. He does do this a lot. Yeah, he does. It is kind of underhanded. <laughs> <laughs> and especially in this case where this guy's not a bad guy. He's not trying well, to... Well, in the end, you find that out. But... Right. Right. That's that's what I'm saying. When it is a bad guy, you're like, all right, Odo found him out. Yeah. Here, he's actually a good guy, and Odo's been sitting in there for how long? While the guy was doing what, you know... What if he, you know, had his friend come over? And, telling secrets. I don't know. And telling secrets. <laughs> well, actually, that would have been good for Odo because he's into secrets. Hmm. Anyways, what, what would he have done if, if the guy started doing something that would be a little embarrassing? Would Odo avert his non, non what would be transparent eyeballs? I don't know. What if he wanted to walk around in the nudes? I don't know. It's just like <laughs> you're just there in somebody's house. Uh huh. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. And okay, he's not a bad guy, and that made it weird. That's that's the only reason why I thought about it. Yeah, I I, I can dig that. I can dig that. It's just that that's Odo's thing. It is Odo's thing. You know. Yeah, Gilligan always ruined their best plans. On the island, you know, a lot of characters they got a thing, and this is Odo's. Speaking of Gilligan, and it dates when we record this, but uh, the professor died today. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. There is a new Gilligan series in the works. 
a series or a movie? I thought it was a series, but um, I don't know. Uh, the, the guy who's doing it is somebody that's on some TV show or something. I guess he has some notoriety. Boy, that that is descriptive, kid. Well, I'm sorry. I never heard of the guy before. <laughs> but he, it he, is, he, uh, he's the, kind of a heavy, heavy dude with dark hair. Right. He was, he's been in a couple of movies and TV shows. The, he was in that um, 44 Pin, the oh. Bill Pullman TV show that was on not too long, for oh. like a season where he okay. was... Bill Pullman was the president, and this guy was again. The... Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, reprising his role from ID Four. <laughs> Same guy. Yeah. So Jenna Elfman was uh, his new wife, and this guy, the guy you're talking about, who's going to play Gilligan, and he's producing the show, uh, played his son. Okay. So that's the only place I know him from, and I unfortunately don't know his name. Yeah, I don't either. All right. So, anyways, uh, that's a little off topic. It's very off topic, but I just want to say that that's yet another example of a show that does not have to be remade. Uh, yeah, sure it does. A whole no, generation of kids don't know who Gilligan is, and that's okay. No, they need to. I, I liked it when I was a kid, but it's like it's a dumb show. Well, and it'll be made for the kids now, and then when they're our age, they'll be like, "That was a dumb show." <laughs> Okay, fine. All right. And then my last thing is that I really didn't understand what the Organian did to bring this peace between Federation and Romulan. Uh, it, it didn't really make sense to me. I mean, well, cause, really, cause it, all all he did is bring Janik and Jamie together, and that's really about it. But they were already together. They were both on Deep Space Nine before he ever popped out of his egg. Well, but, okay, but hold on. I thought that Janik had had some kind of interaction somehow prior to this. Um, he had like a vision or something, right? I, I don't know exactly, but Janik is trying to talk to her all the time, right? I mean, in, in, in Quarks and stuff. Right. And it seems like he's trying to tell her, hey, you and I have a connection. Historically... And I, and I thought he already had the idea of trying to promote peace through them working together. But again, that's that's Janik's idea, not the. Well, I and I thought he got that from his his previous interaction in some way, shape, or form with the Organian. That's what I thought. But, but the that Organian is, was in the Gamma Quadrant, so how could he have? He's an Organian. He's got powers! Well, okay, so this is the kind of stuff that would, if it was a longer comic, we could have found out more. Right. Right. Yep. It, it, have, you, have you read the article from, is it Peter Moffat? Stephen Moffat. Stephen Moffat? The guy that Stephen does right. that does all the, the, Doctor, the, the, the Doctor Who stuff. He's commented, he shot back at people that say a big problem with some of his Doctor Who stuff, and actually some of the Sherlock Holmes stuff too, is that there are gaping plot holes. Things that are just not explained in, in a lot of your stories, or badly explained. One of the two. And, uh, and his response is, it's not that they're not explained, it's just they're not explained on, on, on camera. So, you know, all these things supposedly are all worked out, it's just that either there's not enough time to put everything on the, on, you know, on the final film or there's things they purposely leave out because people can figure things out for themselves because they're smart enough right so maybe you just need to figure out 
exactly what all that stuff means in this comic. Yeah. Because maybe they purposely didn't put everything out there. Quite possible. Yeah, I don't really buy that that comment of his. I think it's a cop. I think it's a cop out. I mean, to a degree, yes. You don't have to overly explain everything, but right. If you know, if you don't explain it at all, then it just seems seems like you're cheating. Yeah, completely. I think so. I mean, unless it really is kind of, it you know, it's like. Not that much of a jump to say, oh, this could have happened or this could happen. But I think this probably happened. You know, at least at least there's enough information that you could make some decent uh, connecting of the dots. But if it's like, man, it's a lot of mumbo jumbo, <laughs> especially on the third to last Matt Smith Doctor Who episode, where he was going through all of his his timeline and. Uh, oh, right, right, right. The, the right. impossible girl was, like, through all points of his life, and it's like, ah, you know, it's like, oh, come on. Yeah, I really, and then they just, oh, he just God. grabs her hand, and they look back, and they see the war doctor, and it's over. Yeah. And next episode, they're out, no problem. Yeah, I, oh, I just didn't like that. No, I agree with you. That, that's, a, that's a very big one. Yeah. However, I will say this, and we got to move on. But I just want to make a comment on Sherlock. You've been, have you been watching the Sherlock episodes? Uh, I have only seen the first couple episodes. Okay, well, mm, I'm going to ruin things just a little bit for you, but I'll, I'll try not to go. At the end of last season, they did the Reichenbach Falls storyline, where supposedly Sherlock dies. Right. So at the end of the season, last season, Sherlock supposedly dies by jumping off the top of a building. And then the first episode of this new season is, of course, in the end, you got to tell us how you did that. And they ended up telling about like maybe three different ways that it could have happened. And at the very end, Sherlock is telling a reporter how he did it. But then the reporter is saying, but wait a minute, if that was, so it becomes obvious that it isn't 100% how he did it. So at the end of it, it's like, they purposely say, Sherlock's not going to tell everybody how he did it. And it's like, okay, maybe not everything has to be explained, but you jumped off of a, you know, a six-story, seven-story building. I want to know how you survived that. Anyway. Well, he probably had a bat cape that just flew out right at the last minute. Could have been. Could have been. Anyway, I just want to say that in kind of I'm okay with that, because I don't think I'd have to know everything, but... Anyway, yeah, go. well, that, that, well, at least they tried to explain it. It's a little different than not explaining. Not saying it at all. anything. I'll agree. Yeah, that's probably part of the reason I'm okay with it. Okay. All right. So you done? I'm done. All right. Then we'll jump into the next issue number one, which is Celebrity Series Rules of Diplomacy. The uh, writers are Aaron Eisenberg and Mark Pansia. Letterer is Leonard Kirk. The inkers are Bob Almond, John Montgomery, Scott Reed, and Leonard Kirk. Letterer is Patrick Owsley. Color design, Moose Bauman. Interior color, Malibu Color. Editor is Phil Crane. And media line editor is Mark Pansia. The cover, uh, similar to the last one, has a little black and white photo in the top right hand corner and it is of Aaron Eisenberg. 
the rest of the cover shows a picture of Nog and also shows the Defiant kind of swooping around. And then uh, Aaron Eisenberg's autograph is in the lower right-hand corner inside of a little black box. All right, so the story starts with Nog and Jake watching as the NCC-1966 USS Exodus docks onto one of the pylons of Deep Space Nine. Nog tells Jake that one day he will be aboard a ship like that, and maybe even someday soon. Not paying attention, Nog bumps into Odo. Odo then informs the young Ferengi that Sisko requests his presence in his office right away. We flash to Sisko's office. Sisko is telling Nog that he wants his help with a young Klingon ambassador who will be visiting the station. Nog will take the Klingon ambassador to Ferenginar so that the ambassador can visit the other cultures. Nog assures Sisko that he will not let him down. The next morning, Nog arrives at the airlock just as the Klingon ship arrives. Sisko gives Nog a communicator badge, and then Nog O'Brien, the ambassador whose name is Gron, and a Klingon bodyguard leave Deep Space Nine aboard a runabout. En route, Nog is playing with his new communicator until Gron makes fun of him for being childish. Once they arrive to Ferenginar, everyone is excited to see Nog return. So he gets a lot of, hey, how's it going, Nog? Um, eventually, a group of his old friends sees this as a chance to get some latinum back from Nog, who won it off of them on his last trip. Nog shows Groon the Ferengi training camp. Groon is not impressed. Then Nog shows him the Ferengi stock market. Then Nog shows him the equivalent of the Ferengi stock market. This is where a Ferengi would truly prove their prowess. Later, the two bump into Nog's friends. The friends then start to wine and dine the young foreigner. They then suggest that perhaps the Klingon would want to partake in a little bit of local gambling. Nog tries to stop him, but the young warrior takes offense and tells him that he knows the risks of gambling. Later at the gambling table, Groon has lost almost everything. He asks the Ferengi if they would allow him to put up a valuable ruby that he carries with him as collateral for an all-or-nothing game. The Ferengi agree since they have rigged the dice in their favor. Nog tries to stop the Klingon, but he refuses to listen. Nog is so stressed by this that he bumps into a waiter and spills all the drinks. He is helping with the cleaning of the glasses when he notices a dice manipulator underneath the table. A quick change of the settings by Nog, suddenly the Klingon has won the game. The other Ferengi at the table are shocked since they knew that it was rigged in their favor. Heading back to the ship, Nog and Groon are surrounded by the Angi Ferengi. Nog then uses his quick wit to calm them all down. He says that when Groon reports back on how much fun he had at their bar, soon whole battle cruisers full of Klingons will be arriving to partake. This pacifies the Ferengi, and they allow them to leave with exclamations of, Don't forget to tell your friends! Later, the runabout is docked again with Deep Space Nine, and everyone is disembarking. Groon then tells Nog that he knew that the Ferengi modified the manipulator by handing 
the device over to the young man. The Klingons leave, and Sisko is very pleased with Nog's performance. Nog says that he has made a friend out of someone that he would have thought would have been his enemy. The end. Oh, Nog! Come on! Klingons are nice people. What about Worf? He doesn't know Worf yet. Ah. Yeah, but still, but Worf is mentioned. Yeah, by uh, by Grok, Grok or whatever his name is. Gron, right? Gron. There you go, Gron. Yeah, I didn't really understand the Worf comment. It was just kind of name dropping. Well, weren't they talking about? I understand what it's like when you embark upon a path that is not typical for your kind or right. something. So I guess Worf, because he joined Starfleet instead of being a warrior yes. in the Empire. Mm. Exactly. Still felt like name dropping. <laughs> it probably <laughs> was. So I thought it was a nice little story. Light, likable. You know, don't have to think too much. Right. No, it was good. But, I, when, I, I, but when you do think, there are some things that are nagging. Okay, what? I didn't quite understand the whole thing about the dice controller. So... Okay, so fine. They found a uh, some kind of a dice manipulator, some kind of magnetic thing underneath the table. They were playing. That's why Gron was uh, losing. Mm-hmm. And so then I thought that Nog had turned it off or something, or maybe reprogrammed it. But I thought reprogramming would take too much time, and that's how they took care of it. But then at the end of the story, Gron hands the dice manipulator to Nog. So it's like, wait a minute. Hold on a second. So, actually, the Klingon knew about it and deactivated it or grabbed it out from under the table and nobody noticed? Right. Is that what he's trying to say? It's like, uh, thanks, Ferengi, but I had it all under control. Is that what he's trying to say? I don't think that's what he's trying to say, but it is unclear. How'd he get it? Yeah, I could see Rom having it, because maybe part of what he did is he grabbed it from the table, and that's how he got it to stop throwing the game. Right. But... Yeah. Well, on page 17, when, when Gron throws the winning roll, you can see somebody pressing the button, the green button on the manipulator underneath the table. So, Oh, okay. I'm assuming that's Nog pressing the button, but oh, it I is didn't... unclear. Yeah. Okay, so well, you brought up something I did not notice, but that still doesn't explain things. No, it doesn't. It, 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 it's ambiguous. Right. So, yeah, I, I was... Also kind of confused when Gron handed over that manipulator. Right. But I did like, you know, and I left it out of the synopsis, unfortunately, uh, that Gron talks about that ruby that he oh, right. wagered and right. kept talking about how valuable it was. And, and, come and to it find wasn't. Out it was just, you know, something, something he picked up when he yeah. was a little kid. No real value. So, so I like that. Yeah, I did too. So uh, he showed his flexibility at being able to play the Ferengi game, and he was a Klingon. I like that. Right. Yeah, and I really like how Nog kind of saved the day with his little statement about, you know, you really want this guy to go back home and tell him how much fun he had with, at your place because, you know, I, I thought yeah. that was pretty good. Yeah, that was clever. That was the good Nog moment. Up, hey. until, up until then, Nog kind of just seemed like a weird guide. Well, a weird guide, yeah, and he really wasn't doing very well in this episode at all. 
But then, when they first started talking about the fact at how Nog had taken Gek in the past, right. so then that was kind of like, okay, cool, okay, he's got some smarts, he's taken these local guys before, and uh, so you get a better feeling about him rather than him just being some dork that plays around with a communicator pen. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it it was odd that they, like, these... I call them friends because they obviously know each other from way back. But, uh, you know, they make comments that, oh, he's he's learned a lot from Quark. And that always seems seemed odd because a lot of times Quark seems like he's looked down on by other Ferengi. Yeah. Well, yeah, but he's shown himself uh, a worthy adversary. Right. Well, anyways, so, I, really, I really don't have much else. <laughs> Yeah, another thing I didn't find very impressive about Nog is at the beginning as they started coming towards Ferenginar, or as the thought, oh, I hope I don't see my grandmother because I still owe her six bars of latinum. <laughs> that was just... So I, I thought that was funny, but it was also like, uh, you know, it, you know, as much as he was in the beginning like staring out at the Exeter and like going, oh, I want to be a, you know, a Starfleet guy or whatever. It's like, and then he, <laughs> we're reminded that he's still a Ferengi. <laughs> so, kind of an interesting combination. Like Worf. I mean, Worf was a Starfleet officer, but he was also Klingon, and you knew he was not normal. Right. And he did things in a Klingon way. Right. So maybe the same thing we'll see with uh, Nog, if they if we actually ever see him again. Well, we won't see him in this series, probably. But, no, no. But, I mean, he I'm did show up. in the future. He did show up in Deep Space Nine as a Starfleet cadet. Yeah. And in the Marvel, once Marvel takes over all these titles next month or when whatever uh, publishing wise this right. came out, they did start a Nog centered series called Starfleet Academy, where it was Nog's first year at the academy and oh. him joining Omega Squad or Alpha Squad or whatever it is that you know that that Wesley joined that one time. Right. So. We will get to see more Nog and how he blends his Ferenginess with the uh, Starfleet uh, way of doing things. There you go. Infinite diversity in infinite combinations. You should trademark that. That's a good good saying. <laughs> Itic, baby. Itic. So, not the Exeter, the Exodus. Was it the Exodus at the beginning? Right. Exodus. I thought, I, have we seen that design before? It's a little different. Yeah, it's a little different, but you know, yeah, I, mean, I don't know. Um, it, it takes a lot of the same ideas that you've seen in every Federation ship, but it's unique. I mean, I haven't quite seen that one before. Right, it looks like the Millennium Falcon exactly. on top of a um, you know Ambassador class nacelle and engine section. Well, okay, so right, so not, not definitely. Yeah, so definitely the uh, saucer section looks like the Millennium Falcon, 100%. The only thing missing is the, you know, the, the cockpit sticking out the side. That's it. Right. The center, the engineering section looks a little bit like Voyager or something yeah. like that. Right. Yeah. Um, but that kind of, kind of like on the bottom, straight out, does remind, does remind me of an uh, ambassador class, uh, nacelle pylon, kind of. Kind of right because it has, of, but not quite. Cause, yeah, because these these connect in a little differently. But right, that was the vibe I was getting. Right. 
So good point, though. I think somebody was a Star Wars fan. Who on is that it? one? Who is it? Ah, well, who 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 was the Leonard Kirk was a penciler, right? I guess it must have been him. Must have been. Yeah. Although with a name like Kirk, you you think he he has to be a Star Trek fan? <laughs> so you'd think. Yeah, especially Leonard Kirk, Leonard Spock, you know, actor right. Kirk. Captain, you know, man, pretty Taz, pretty well, uh, pretty Taz and, name, and it's Leonard Leonard McCoy. Oh no, well yeah, that too. Oh my so, God! So he has a tie-in with the 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 trio, the trinity. I think, so is he making up this name or what? I don't get it. <laughs> it almost sounds like it's made up. <laughs> right. Anyway. So um, my last comment, I guess, might be that when they fly to Ferenginar. Mm-hmm. I mean, the painting or the drawing of the runabout going towards the planet is is really cool because there's like f- three different looks like full blown planets surrounding Ferenginar. Oh, are they like moons? Or they're, they're I don't full know, but they, pro- planets. they look like they have atmospheres and continents and stuff. So, I mean, it's a it's an awesome depiction, but it doesn't seem very practical. Right. So one green planet that looks smaller, but it may just be farther away. Two planets that look like they have cloud systems. Right. Mm. That is rather crowded. Right. I really it, didn't notice that. It, it's a nice drawing. I mean, the way the sun's like beaming off of them, and right. it, it looks really nice, but does not seem practical. No. Not only those three ones that are close, but it looks like there's another spherical body a little bit further out. That's just a lens flare. Oh. <laughs> and that's another th- so it looks like there's two stars also. Yeah, I didn't what? know what that thing was. Maybe that was just another planet that's really That's really out. bright. Right. I yeah, mean, no, it looks like a star. It looks like a source of light. I don't know. Looks busy. But it's pretty. As right. you say. And I thought Ferenginar was always raining, so I thought that it would be more cloud cover, but it doesn't look all that bad when they're coming in. No. Okay. Anything else? None. All right. Well, then let's uh, wrap it up. Uh, next week, we'll be back. And we'll be doing the Wharf special number zero and the Deep Space Nine special number one. Have we had special number zeros before? Nope. This is the first one. It's, that's odd. It was I the mean, 90s, man. They did all kinds of crazy stuff. <laughs> you know what's more valuable than a number one? A number zero. Oh my gosh, it's the beginning of the end. And then there was also halves. So there was, you know, one half, number one half. Who did that? Everybody. <laughs> oh, you're... Really? Issue number one half. One half, yeah. And it would be like a promotional type thing that would like be like a, uh, you know, special order or it, sometimes they were like uh, included in other magazines or something uh, like Wizard. There was a, a magazine called Wizard, which was kind of your comic book informa- uh, information magazine. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, they would have a special issue one half in there. And uh, it would be either like a prequel to the, you know, number one that was coming out or something like that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All of them did. I mean, uh I know Dark Horse Comics did it, um, Image Comics did it, 
Top Cow did it. I think Malibu did it, and probably Marvel and DC too. So it was it was a thing there for a while. <laughs> Amazing creativity! It's endless creativity in this comic book world. Right. Yeah, because in a couple of weeks we're gonna do the Deep Space Nine Ash Can number one, which which was also a thing they did there for a while. Yeah, Ash which Cans. Is, yeah, which is just a tiny comic. Hmm. <laughs> Printed on like paper that's like half the size as normal. Ah. So. As opposed to uh, Ashes of Eden, which we'll be doing soon, which is a long uh, graphic novel. Yes, where we adapt, where they adapted the first Shatner book, hmm. Ashes of Eden. Right, which was a novel, so trying to squeeze it into a comic uh, makes sense why it'd be kind of beefy. It's not, I don't think it's that all that long. Okay. It's not like, you know, when they have adapted The Stand and things like that, which becomes these oh, my huge, Lord. huge, huge, huge books. Right. Okay, well, looking forward to that in a few weeks. All right, great. Okay. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us on The Review. See you later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes, or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.